The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. Well, this episode this week is going to be a little different in terms of content. Um, what I normally talk about, some of my more sort of, uh, I would say, spiritual journeys and, and books and authors in that sense. I have a friend coming on the program who has written a book, the definitive book, on of all things, the Ponzi scheme of Bernie Madoff. And I know that sounds like, how is that uplifting? How is that inspiring? Well, Jim Campbell has really written the quintessential book, so much so that Netflix has optioned it off and now has a four-part documentary series based on his book called Madoff Talks, uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi Ponzi scheme in history, and the Netflix's show is now called Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street, both incredible, full of 400 correspondences between Bernie Madoff in jail and Jim Campbell, um, who is a fellow broadcaster, and it's fascinating stuff. He's going to tell us all about it when he comes up. But we want to thank Balance of Nature, Fruits and Veggies in a Capsule for making this show possible each and every week. Also making your good nutrition each and every week happen. And how is that? By giving you your recommended 10 servings of fruits and vegetables on a weekly basis to the tune of 32 different fruits and vegetables in the capsules when you take three and three, three of the reds, the fruits, and three of the green, the vegetables. It's a remarkable product. It's um, it's it's something that once you start it, and I was talking to a friend, actually, it's a friend who does the show with me. Once you start it, you feel so much better that you you really can't imagine not taking it in your life. And a lot of people have said that because you just feel better. You feel different. And on so many different levels, physically, mentally, um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful product. I mean, you can't get it in a store. It's not like a vitamin you go to a million different shops or a pharmacy or whatever. No, it, you get it through ordering through the company here in the United States. It's called Balance of Nature. And what you do when you go to order is you put my name in the promo code. That way they know that you heard it here and you will get 35% off your first preferred order and free shipping always, and really start your journey to better health at balanceofnature.com. When we come back, Jim Campbell, a broadcaster and also now an, a journalist who is responsible for this book, Madoff Talks, and the Netflix series called Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street. Don't go away. It's the way home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. It's not often that I get to interview uh, somebody about topics that aren't normally, you know, it, my sort of lane, my my ilk, which is uh, kind of like the spiritual and uplifting and positive, but but really hard hitting journalism, interesting stuff of of global importance. But I get to do it because uh, a fellow broadcaster that I work with in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, has done something absolutely remarkable over the past few years. He has written the quintessential book on Bernie Madoff, the the Ponzi scheme, uh, the notorious Ponzi scheme guy. Uh, his, his book is different from all of them that are out there right now, so much so, and it's so important to the actual topic of it, that Netflix uh, took just about everything from the book, including my friend Jim Campbell, 
put them into a four-part documentary series, which is absolutely being, uh, everybody in the world is watching it right now. I'm so happy to have Jim Campbell on. He's a fellow broadcaster, as I said, and here he is. And a fellow Midwesterner, I might add, too, from the Chicago area, though, but I'm not... Right outside of uh, where I am in uh, Indiana right now. Great. Very happy to be on, though. It's a a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, so have I. uh, So much so. And um, really, it's and the more I read about it, the more interesting it becomes, but not only because of the topic itself, but because of the fact that it's become so relevant all of a sudden with this latest uh, cryptocurrency debacle with the FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and everything. So the timing of this is uncanny. Did you have any idea when you wrote the book and then were optioned for it for Netflix that it would come out out right at the same time as all this is happening? Well, you have to remember that when the book, and you may not know this, when the book came out two weeks uh, before, Bernie died. And that's what initially jumped everything because I got, I got to be on CBS Sunday morning, right? Yes. Only because Bernie had died. And they came to my house and they filmed for two hours and five minutes made that Sunday. And so here we are, um, you know, we were taping this in, um, the way it worked was there was four months of pre-production where basically they took my book and I taught them finance because they didn't know anything about it. They were coming out of um, basically serial killer um, stuff. Joe Berlinger, who's, by the way, one of the top directors in Hollywood for true crime documentaries. But So we had four months of that, and then four months of filming, and then they did four months of post-production where Netflix gets it ready for all the countries, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no way that they could have known about Sam Bankman-Fried. That was, again, just like Bernie passing away two weeks before pure coincidence. And by the way, it always gets to the first question, well, could this ever happen again? Well, guess what? It just happened already. It just happened again. And so, so much to go over. First of all, Jim Campbell, you're you're a business, uh, you have a syndicated radio show, Business Talk with Jim Campbell. You also have a crime show, Forensic Talk with Jim Campbell. And, you know, you're you're a radio broadcaster, but you've also done some really hard-hitting interviews with some very interesting people, kind of notorious in their own rights. But how did you become the person who had 400 exchanges of emails and handwritten notes between the then jailed Bernie Madoff? How did that happen? How did you get that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I have to be honest, largely luck. Uh, Lori Sandell wrote a book that um, Andrew and Ruth cooperated with to an extent on the story, although Ruth hated the book. And... I don't know why she did this, but my show was live then the day before. She says, do you want to talk to Andy Madoff off the record for prep? I said, geez, why are you kidding me? I get Andy on the phone in New York City, and I started attacking him from the minute I get on the phone, and he disarmed me. He answered what I thought were honestly. You know, I said, you know, your dad gave you three million bucks for your buy a co-op right before this happened. Why aren't you giving that money back? He said, I should be. And so then as we're talking, he goes, I'm going to listen to the show tomorrow since it's live. And then uh, we'll talk afterwards if I feel like you're saying the same kinds of things. And he does. And coincidence number two, his wife is moving to Greenwich. Ruth, um, sorry, his mom, Ruth from Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, well, I'll take her to lunch then. It's not going to really know a lot of people here. They're going to want to hang out with her. And that's what happened. So we had we had a great lunch. She also... Uh, totally disarmed me. Um, she comes in, you know, in the uh, Sound Beach uh, Avenue at the, at the beach house 
wearing shades in December, and there was no one in the restaurant. So she didn't want to be recognized, obviously. Right, right. And she orders a chef salad that she devours like she's had no food. And then we just hit it off, total chemistry, until we walked out. And I said, you know, can I get a picture? And she stopped and said, you're wired, aren't you? She thought I'd set her up. Uh Uh-huh. But after she knew that I hadn't, she introduced me to Bernie. And Bernie, we had to get agreement from the prison warden that we could communicate through the email system, right? Uh Uh-huh. But... that's how it happened. So you wanted – what was your point? What was your, your goal to, to, get the, to get comments and things from Bernie Madoff himself that he hadn't given to anyone else? Or is it because you were writing a book? And tell us, what, was the, what year was this happening? Yeah, this is, this is like 10 years ago, like 2011 or so. And I had no preconceived notions, right, because I'd never written a book or anything. It was this relationship with Bernie evolved into 400 pages of communications, the deepest relationship he had with anybody uh, ever in the media. Um, so I had to figure out, well, I have to go do something with this. And the obvious thing is to write a book. And I had said to Bernie at the start, I said, um, this is your chance to, to talk to history, but I'm going to vet every single word you say. And he said, I accept that. And by the way, none of the Madoffs, you're talking Ruth, Andrew, and Bernie, who all trusted me with their legacy, knew me from dirt, Right. Why, a, did, why did they trust that's you, That's a good Jim? question. I, I mean, you're a trustworthy guy. We all love you. You know, you're yeah, a personality, I, and everyone knows you around here, at least in Greenwich, Connecticut. But where yeah. I am in Indiana right now, maybe people um, have heard your radio show and such. Such, But why Why would these people who have, have been on the worst side of history yeah. trust anybody at this point or even you know, want to? to you, know, you know, it's a question that I literally cannot answer because I don't understand it either. And, I mean, to give you an example, Catherine um, Hooper it was, was Andy's girlfriend, right? They could not get married because of all the... Andy was... Andrew Madoff, sorry. Uh, the youngest the, the son. The youngest son, because yeah. the other son committed suicide. Yeah, the other son I never knew because he committed suicide. Correct. But I knew Andy and I knew Ruth, obviously, well. And um, she got me a lot of access into the firm as well and all kinds of information. And she was, you know, devoted to Andrew. Um, and devoted to the fact that she didn't think he was involved, right? Mm-hmm. But she tell so she doesn't know me, and she gives me this access, and she says, "Jim, if you find he's involved, I'll accept it." Which all, which also blew me away. But the second thing is that they didn't, I didn't give them any access to the book. So the first time she learned whether I was going to implicate them or not was watching CBS Sunday Morning, and she told me her dad was talking to her, giving her play-by-play as to what I was saying, Mm -hmm. and afterwards she wrote me a note saying, "Um, thank you, I hope you sell 65 billion books. Wow, have you? 65 billion. Have you? Get the number, (laughs) the Ponzi number. Oh, yes. Is that what it was? It was 65 65 billion. billion. That's where she pulled that number out of. Which at the time was the largest swindle in it's history. It's still the largest it's still, Ponzi scheme in well, history. Well, but I, I thought that the, the, the latest one, the cryptocurrency... Yeah, SC, you know, SBF, the market value of his business was $32 billion. Okay. And he took $8 billion of his customers' money. So it's not in the same league yet. Okay. Um, but it, uh, it's up there. Right. So, so Bernie Madoff, uh, tell me, is there a weird thing that happens when you are communicating so deeply mm-hmm. with somebody such as himself, which was really considered a monster? In fact, the Netflix series is called Madoff Monster of Wall Street, right? Yes. What happens when you become that 
connected to somebody like that? Do they, do they become human to you? Like, so mm-hmm. you're not seeing them anymore as like somebody who got built out of all this money or somebody yeah. you're reading about in the newspaper. It, does he become human? Was he human? Well, he's very human in the way he comes across because um, he's brilliant. He has total recall. He's um, low-key charisma. And I, I called him the anti-con con man. I said, you were a great con man, Bernie, precisely because you're not a con man. I mean, he would tell you, I don't want your money. I, I, you know, I've got enough money. And he, and he would have 14 banks in Europe all thought they were the only bank with access to Bernie. And he never needed anybody's money, right? Because that was the, you know, and he was just very effective at it. He ran the firm, though. You know, he had a legitimate business and an illegitimate business, which is why Joe Berlinger, one of the first things he told me was he was going to recreate both floors because they reflect his mind and they're totally different. In the same building. You're the talking same, the 17th and the 19th, 19th right? Yeah. On the 19th floor, he ran that business uh, when it was legit, 100% legit and totally pro-customer. And so... They felt it was a family business, and the, the employees, they, um, he paid for emergency medical. He paid everybody's honeymoon expenses before he was stealing the money to pay for it. You know, it was out of his, so it was got, gotten legitimately. It, it was legitimate money. And that business started from nothing, was worth $3 billion at its peak with no Ponzi scheme. And number three volume on the New York, it broke the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange. So it was a profound deal. But so that part of him, it's not black and white. You can't look at him and say he's Ted Bundy. On the other hand, Joe Berlinger, who's done a movie on Ted Bundy, will tell you that Ted was very charismatic and smart and, and articulate and all those things, too. So it may come with the narcissistic uh, personality, which he definitely had. And next you'll ask, did he have any remorse, right? But go ahead. Well, I was going to ask that at some <laughs> point. But so yeah. he's was there a definitive moment in his life where he decided – that he was going to do something illegitimate simply was it because he could it was it because it was just another challenge that he could get away with it because he was it was like a, mm-hmm. a project he could why did he do it if mm-hmm. he had a very successful legit business going on why did he do it great question and here's the answer that will blow you away what you would have thought of happened is just like you started to describe something happened i lost some money I'm gonna, I made the mistake of a gambler in doubling down. In this case, I'll run a Ponzi scheme for a little bit of time, get the money back, put it back, no one will ever notice. That's what you would think he would have done. And by the way, that's a story he told me that he hadn't really told um, anybody else because he thought it would be too complex to understand. Um, but here's the thing. He was actually running that business on 19, that business on 17. Here, One of the most ethical businesses on Wall Street and the biggest criminal enterprises side by side from the beginning. Same man. And try and figure that out. It's unfathomable. He was running it side by side. And, okay, obviously somebody knew what was going on. Come on, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people knew it wasn't kosher or there was something going on. Nobody knew it was a, pon- a pure Ponzi scheme. Nobody? No. He had, he had employees that he hired me. Upstairs, he had these brilliant employees from business schools and stuff, leading edge technology, pristine. The floor looked like a Hollywood set. And then down below, it's high school graduates, uh, old computer from 1980, and a total mess looking. So completely the opposite. These guys were unsophisticated. He manipulated them, and then he brought, he 
supplied them with money and fake IRAs and all this stuff. Um, so they eventually figured out well, something wasn't right, but they did not know it was a Ponzi scheme. Now, his big four investors, if you've seen the movie, these are the guys that bailed him out every now and then, um, the biggest of whom took $7 billion. You would have thought that if they would not have left their money there because they knew it was a Ponzi they were supporting. But see, they left their money in too. Um, they'd take a lot out in the interim. So uh, nobody knew. And only only Bernie really knew. Now, of course, I did my investigation in Chapter 8, which goes into whether Ruth, Mark, or um, uh, Andrew had, had, question yeah, had any, years, any yeah. pre-knowledge. And by the way, CBS asked this, you know, uh, when I'm my back long, and I said, I can't answer that because we want to sell books. And, they, you know, they, they pause it off, and the guy says, you have to answer that question, you know. Uh-huh. And, and, I, and, and did you? I did answer the question. So yeah. did Ruth know? No. Um, it's very t- – the whole thing is touch and go, though, because um, Bernie took $800 bucks of customer money out of the J.P. Morgan account, and he snuck it in the back door of the legitimate business, and he hid it in the trading profit and loss statements. Okay? Now, here's what looks bad. You, there are two trading desks, right? Who ran those? Mark and Andrew. Money goes through the trading desk. That doesn't look good, does it? And I was, and so it took me a long time to get, to get underneath enough evidence to show the boys did not see the books. They were cooked afterwards. In other words, they saw the honest trading profit and loss statement. And then in the back with the CFO and uh, one assistant and Bernie, the three of them did all the fudging. So the sons also did not know. Did not know. They were d- destroyed by it. And in fact, um, if you, if you like a mafia, um, uh, link, the 19th floor was like the front of a restaurant, a legitimate restaurant. They were like up front, the maitre d's, and they ran it clean. And the gambling was going on, in this case, downstairs. In the speakeasy. Two floors, uh, where all the bad stuff was going on. And that's basically what it what had happened. Now, did um, uh, on Ruth, um, she also did not know. But she knew before the kids, because um, the day before this went down, um, Bernie had told her to get $10 million out of the account. Um which in and of itself isn't end of the world, but he'd obviously told her something else, obviously, because she was described as catatonic in the building that day. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, so she, right at the end, he must have told, the boys knew nothing, sorry, until um, he, he had the nervous breakdown in his office and they went to the apartment and then he confessed and they, now think about this, they, they, they confessed in his apartment and they know the whole business and all their money is there. So they could have waited a couple of hours. They could have gone and got their money. They could have moved their money. They could have become part of the crime at that point. Mm-hmm. They could have left the country. And they went immediately to the lawyers to figure out how they turned them in. Immediately. And not the only the that, sons, both how sons, to turn their father in. Right in, immediately. Not only that, um, I, ta- I often would say to Andy, because... When they walked out of the apartment that afternoon, they never said another word to him the rest of their lives. They never. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and I would say to him, you know, talk to your dad for your own closure. Forget him. And he'd say, never. He's dead to me. That was, okay. And the other one, sadly, you know, took his life. Two years to the day. Let me tell you about the other one. Because everybody thinks that was an um, indication of his guilt, right? Right. But the real thing is that it was indication that he was weak and and that destroyed by it. Andrew was much tougher stock. Mm-hmm. But just to show you, um, 
Eleanor uh, Squillary, who's one of the heroes in the book and, and in the film, um, was Bernie's secretary for 30 years, and she's one that got me all kinds of access as well. She's there that day when everybody starts calling in, and she was going into the bathroom to throw up every 20 minutes because you had 70-year-old people calling in desperate with all their money destroyed. Mm. So she's going home to Staten Island in a car at a, about 7 p.m. that night, and her daughter Sabrina calls. Sabrina was the same age of the boys and had worked um, at the front desk in their high school years with the boys, so she knew them. Okay, This is two hours after Bernie's been arrested, and she says, Mom, Mark's not going to be able to handle this. He's going to kill himself. Mm. Two hours after. Then two years to that day he did. Oh, and very tragic because I was thinking about that when it happened. I thought, oh, my goodness. I wasn't sure if it was because he it was an admission of guilt right, right. or if he, he was just so destroyed. I mean, to have your name so destroyed and then also the guilt of all the lives that you financially destroyed yes. and probably mentally to, to the millions of people. So you really got the, the inside scoop more than anybody did. And so Netflix realized that they have made this this uh, series and you said it's it's very well done right by the um berlinger the guy berlinger yeah berlinger um and so it's a four-part series you're in it right jim yes i am okay so so for any of this correspondence where did you go to the jail and talk to him face to face the, the warden vetoed me as a security risk Okay. Do I look like a security risk? They don't, <laughs> they don't know. Uh, but, uh, okay, so right now, anybody can watch it. And But it's, okay, so it's also very educational. And what yeah. I, you know, this show always bills itself as the uplifting and inspirational show. But there yeah. is something with this story that is so drastic and so sad and so horrible. But you have, because you're a business guy, you're a consultant, a corporate consultant, a business yeah. consultant, you have found learned so much about how people can avoid ever getting wrapped up in this because here it went and happened again Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency wise with the sam bankman freed character ftx and uh, there's two things i want to say about that but the first one is so it could happen again you you used to ask yourself could this ever happen again but you've already been answered that question um so what are the things that the cup one or two I know that you've got a whole list but yeah. what are what are things people need to know yep. uh, when investing their money to, to whether or not they are really in a legitimate the, the first thing system. you know is there uh, and I came up with this as I was trying to figure out how to help people at the end there's something in the medical profession called the hypocritical uh, Hippocratic oath which is do no harm right and I say individual investors should start from that position right not from how much can I make or how soon can I double my money but do no harm right mm-hmm. and I never found anybody that was a victim or even the people on the legitimate floor who understood what his strategy is was, okay, mm-hmm. which was actually conceptually very simple. Uh, it should have mirrored the market, and it didn't. It openly went up. Um, so do not ever invest in something you don't understand. Do not ever invest in something that is they tell you there's a guaranteed return, particularly if it's a stock product, right, because you know you can't guarantee stock performance. And Bernie was not only guaranteeing, he was giving you the exact number on January 1 that you were going to make December 30th, mm. okay? Another thing is, don't 
necessarily make decisions on investments because of the affinity group you're in. This was an affinity group crime. And what I mean by that, it was a largely Jewish crime, 85% of the victims and charities. And what this was, was starting with friends and family and then uh, spreading out to other Jewish networks. They were all buying because this guy said, this guy's this guy, this guy said, this guy. We don't know how he does it. It's great. His nickname was the Jewish T-bill, as secure as the Treasury bills yes. in the United States. I remember he, he I remember them talking about on the radio that the synagogues that were built out of all yes, their, yeah. I mean, really, it was it, it was a tragedy for many people. I mean, a real tragedy. The other thing about taking responsibility for your own investments like that is that, I hate to say this, do not assume the SEC is going to find it or that the government's going to protect you, because they didn't in either case. They missed five separate investigations, and SIPC, which is the FDIC equivalent to the securities, completely screwed up how how could they miss it though honestly that's their business for crying out loud did they they did did they do it on purpose were they getting kickbacks is there uh, anything like that? No, no. The, the SEC guys were not there incompetent. And it's bureaucratic, and they're siloed, so they never had the right people with the right skills looking for the Ponzi scheme. They had guys only that knew how to look at stock trading, which he was doing legally. So they just kept reinvestigating the stuff they exonerated him on. Okay. And um, it's, it's, he had such a good reputation— and he was the chairman of NASDAQ, right? Yes. Yeah, which so, <laughs> so they were in bed, bed with him in the NASDAQ and the SEC. They trust him so much they would say, Bernie, we don't know what Goldman Sachs is doing. Can you explain this to us? Okay. So that's what they would do. And then you know, they would come in and they ran circles around, <laughs> around the SEC. Remember, he was having fake reports printed out in the 17th floor while the examiners were in the room. Just made it up. In fact, sometimes it was so hot off the printer, they put them in the refrigerator to freeze them before <laughs> oh they God. handed them upstairs. So, um, uh, yeah. So they were the other thing that I say at the end is um, the stock market has gone up 9% a year for 100 years on average, right? At the end, Bernie was giving away 11%. Again, in this, nobody knew what it was. So I say take the 9% in an index fund and sleep at night. So that just takes me to the final question I have. I I can't imagine that after all of this, I mean, they really made it seem like this will never happen again because now we know the worst that can happen. And yet it has just recently with this FTX thing, this young kid, you know, I mean, and and a lot of people had apparently some huge red flags. Nothing was done about it. Um, Apparently he did a lot of donating to the Democratic National Convention. 73 million bucks. Yeah, seventy three million. So, and he does nothing. It, it almost feels like this is trying to get blown over and 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 not really gotten to the bottom of. It. Is that just my impression of it, or like it? It doesn't seem like they're taking this that seriously. And it wasn't as much as Madoff, but it was a lot. They've actually, the, if you look at the charges, they're very serious because his story is basically, I'm in jeans. I mean, I'm in shorts. The dog ate my homework. I don't know how this happened. You know, there I didn't know the other company that all the money was moved to, which is completely illegal to commingle. I didn't know anything about that, although I own ninety percent of it. And then, but you look under the hood, the dog had to be brilliant because he was doing a lot of market manipulation, which is really a no-no. And it was as bad as he was borrowing uh, one point three billion personally, collateralized by customer money, which is a big no-no, right? Mm. Well, they programmed the machine not to even charge him interest off of money he's stealing to borrow. 
So that's a dog that's awful smart if he had no idea any of this stuff was going on. Yeah, but how how could they not know that? I would have thought there would be people, investigators that were always constantly sniffing around this kind of thing, especially with the mm-hmm. cryptocurrency. Yep. Same same problem you had with Madoff, which is all that money that was funneled in came from feeder funds, right? These are hedge funds whose only job is to say, you're the right investment manager. Here's I know your track record. I know the money's there, right? And all those guys were bribed by Madoff not to do that, right? Now, take a look at SBF. Sequoia, Citadel, BlackRock, SoftBank, these are all the biggest institutional investors, and they had thrown money at it. Where's their due diligence? Whose money is it they're throwing, right? They're making it, but it's all investors. In both cases, complete failure of due diligence by institutions who should be doing that as their job. Right. It's another thing if it's you know if it's me in Elkhart, Indiana, and I don't know anything. These guys all should have been doing their jobs. And you're right, there was no controls, zero, going on at that thirty billion dollar uh, business. He was running it like on a spreadsheet, you know. Right, and it doesn't appear. I mean, it took a, a, an awful long time to bring him back from the Bahamas. I thought, yeah. what, what are they waiting for? You know, I mean, it's so clear. But I, what do you think? You know, at, at, do you think the Madoff uh, situation is going to portend what's going to happen to this guy? Or do you think it's they're, they're doing um, something a little fuzzy here? Personally, I think if, if the guy continues to maintain that the dog ate my homework and I'm, you know, I have no liability, he's going to be in jail for 100 years. If he's smart, he's going to at some point have to plea and, and he'll be lucky if he gets 20 years. Um, okay. So it's it's one See. of it's one of those two things in my mind because there's too much there, and um, you know he's going to have to be uh, held accountable. The trouble is that um, he's the top dog, right? So he's lost a lot of his leverage in terms of uh, you know uh, pleading. Uh, the best thing for the government would be just having to avoid the trial, so that's his only leverage left. Or he can try and bet 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 the world, right? And say that the dog ate my homework and I'm not guilty. Or he donated so much money to the powers that be that they're going to do everything in their power not to hold him accountable. I don't know. It's sketchy and crazy, but Madoff Talks, your book, Uncovering the Untold Story Behind the Most Notorious Ponzi Scheme in History, and then Netflix's uh, Take, the uh, four-series documentary called the uh, Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street, that's based off of your book, Jim Campbell. Fascinating stuff. Truly, um, you, you were there for things that nobody else really on the planet was, and I could talk to you for another five hours how fascinating a journey this must have been for you. But I see you doing a lot of network TV now and a yeah. lot of, um, you know, some great TV on uh, Fox News Channel and stuff because of this. And I'm going to Mexico next month to introduce the Spanish version of the book in Acapulco. How amazing. Is that cool? That's fabulous. Well, I speak Portuguese. If you get yeah, it into I Brazil, I'll do that one for you. All right. <laughs> Jim Campbell, thank you so much. People can hear you at Jim uh, the, at your business talk show with Jim Campbell and also Forensic Talk. Thank you, Laura. Great honor to be on here. I'm Laura Smith. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, every once in a while, I get lucky and I get these incredible authors with these exciting books to come on the program and and talk about not only the book, but the process. And in this 
instance, we have a trilogy going on. That sounds ever so exciting. Honestly, it is, um, it's exciting just to read about the topic of it. It's something that interests me greatly, the intersection of spirituality and uh, technology and science and AI and all the things that we think about in the world right now and indeed are taking place on some level everywhere. My guest is Michael Kelly. He has written the first book in the trilogy, The Lost Theory, um, is uh, a sci-fi, a metaphysical sci-fi book um, that leads into his latest that literally just dropped in October, The Devil's Calling. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the way home. And these books sound absolutely literally thrilling. And I think you've even won some awards uh, or gotten very close to winning awards for for thrillers. Is that true? Yes, uh, but none of the big ones yet. So I'm waiting on the big ones. Well, I mean, it just came out in October. But um, tell us about. So you originally you're you're you were a stockbroker, or you were at least um, somebody who was living in the world of Wall Street. Um, and like many great authors do, they finally get to their calling, their true calling. And it seems like you did that when you started writing. Is writing something that you always wanted to do? Yeah, it really is a second chance. Um, in throughout my youth and through college, um, I loved reading. I loved the great books, the great literature. My father kind of instilled that into me. And, um, at the time I was writing some poetry and some other, you know, literary aspirations. And, but I was too immature, I think, and too undisciplined to write a full work of prose or a novel. And quite frankly, I fancied myself, or this is a story I tell myself, that I thought I was Bob Dylan or going to be the next Jackson Brown. And uh, But with, in my mind, or at least, the struggling artist also had a self-destructive streak. So fortunately, uh, I followed uh, a more conventional route initially. I think I saw that it was kind of a dead end at that point um, in my life um, and became a lawyer and then went on to Wall Street. I, I had a very exciting job on Wall Street. It was an international business. Um, so I got to build and see teams and see all the world. Um, so it was a lot of fun, but I was fortunate enough to retire in my early fifties and go back to my first love. Um, I didn't know at the time I, I got to it through, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, through studying quantum physics and Eastern mysticism and the intersection between the two led to kind of a pseudo theory for myself of everything. And the first book is about uh, a lost theory of everything that they go in an adventure to find and the obstacles along the way. Uh, And the second book, as you mentioned, moves into uh, artificial intelligence and some of the noetic sciences like telepathy. This is interesting. Um, So the theory of everything is what it's actually called in, in the first book that and then which carries through the second one as well. What would be some of the basic premises of the theory of everything? And is it based in any, you said quantum physics, um, Eastern mysticism, anything else, any type of Western philosophy or, or spiritual practice? Well, it's called the theory of constant creation. Um, so, you know, if you, it, it sounds a little trite to, to have some of your listeners, but if you read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, uh, there really is only the present moment. And in Buddhism, um, they also focus very much on presence and through meditation and other practices. 
And if you look at quantum physics, it looks like at the instant, uh, at any instant, all of creation, all of matter is reduced to nothingness and then reappears each instance. So rather than it posits, rather than a singularity at the Big Bang, that almost every instant is a new instant of creation and a Big Bang or a singularity each moment. Okay. And is there an... Are ethics involved in this or any type of moral code or is it or is it uh, less about that? I think um, when you experience and I've had I've been blessed by some experiences in the past of this kind of sense of oneness and that you achieve potentially through I, I at the time it was in college through poetry. Um, but you can also obviously through meditation and other practices. But I think anytime you really are present and it's a, it's a loving presence and it's a um, sense of oneness and you know, Buddhism has a view of us all having Buddha natures and they get covered up with ego and thoughts and uh, stories about ourselves and about the world and the suffering of the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it the, the theory itself doesn't necessarily come uh, with any inherent uh ethics or morality, but I think the the experience um, generates that. And so within both of the books, you have sort of the, uh, the theory of everything, the person who, you know, comes up with that, who in, in the book is the best friend of the protagonist, uh, Sean McQueen. And he ends up uh, mysteriously disappearing and, and, and dying. And so it's, it's up to his best friend and, and the partner of his best friend now to t- try to save this theory of everything against um, some so-called evil forces and idea uh, ideologies. It sounds like it, it was almost, um, you know, when I was reading about it, it sounded a, a little prescient to me in terms of like, this could really sort of kind of happen. And you know how sometimes books do that and like, hundred years later, you find out that they were kind of prophetic in a certain way. Uh, I do. Did you do that purposely when you were writing the book? Well, uh, yeah. Well, it, uh, yes, I think it, it it made for an exciting adventure. And I think every life may be in their, its own way trying to discover what's it all about. What's my theory of everything? Um, so it's meant to be kind of a metaphor for everyone's search about what, what life is really meaning. And it, it one of the theories, uh, not theories, themes of the all three books is Adolf Huxley posed that if self-realization or enlightenment is something that's real and obtainable in this lifetime, how can that not be the focus once you're fed and once you have shelter? How can that be one's focus in life? So, yes, Sean Byron McQueen starts out in a very circumscribed life. He's a widower. He's a little adolescent minded. But through his friend's death and uh, meeting a love of it life, who happens to be a quantum physicist, who go out and search for this, he opens up through the first book and the second book even further. And the third book is about potentially near-death experiences, aliens coming, and perhaps his total awakening. So it's meant to be an arc that continues, it continually expands. Oh, it sounds really thrilling to me. It's right up my alley, and I'm sure... Thousands of others, because uh, this this is something that I think interests a lot of us. I mean, it does have a quality of science fiction to it. But at the same time, there's that that uh, age old uh, sort of uh, 
the quest between good and evil and and one winning out over the other and trying to uh, save mankind, save oneself through self-realization as well. Um, So have you written the third book yet? The third book is uh, the story is written and the manuscripts out with a uh, editor currently for its first edit. Um, so it's probably it's at least a year away from being published, but in another 10 edits away from being uh, going to print. So it's uh, it's got a ways to go as far as, you know, making it polished and um, addressing any issues that the editors come up with along the way. But uh, it's. It, it, I love it. And it's, a, it's, it's great. It's just, it's really a fun experience too. writing. Um, I, I recommend it for anyone. Oh, you know, I just think it's great that you did that. I, I feel so happy for people who sort of really kind of capture their, their dreams and really, you know, tackle them and, and like you have, and, and you made a huge life change by going from, uh, you know, law to, to Wall Street and then, and then to writing. I think it, it's good for people to know that that was your trajectory because I think a lot of people wish for that and they often think maybe it's not possible, but you're kind of living the dream. And, and so I'm happy for you. Uh, the lost theory and the devil's calling. How have they been received? Have you gotten a lot of feedback and a lot of, um, uh, positive affirmation? Yes, um, it's it's a great, and again, that's an interesting process too because I was not really keyed in very much to social media at all, and you know, as soon as you, the first book comes out, you're looking at all the reviews and you're trying to ferret out, um, you know, where did I go wrong or what did people like and not like, and and the crit- some of the criticism struck me as, oh my god, that's really mean. <laughs> I was I was oh, really. I was really surprised. Uh, Welcome to social media. <laughs> it yeah, can be it, very mean, but it can also be uplifting as well. Some people, did you have people that were also very taken with the books and are waiting breathlessly for, for volume three? Yes. Yes. I, no, that's really rewarding. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's fun too to have interaction with the people as they're reading it. Uh, I mean, you get silly comments uh, by, not silly, but, Everyone has their different take. Some of my hiking buddies thought that he was too effeminate. And some of my female readers thought that he thought too much about women um, and their <laughs> physical attributes. So, uh, you know, you really can't win. I mean, everyone's got their own perspective on things. And it's it's That's fascinating. Right. Yeah. You absolutely cannot win. But you can, you do win when you stay true to your art and you, uh, you forge through anyway and then Sometimes it, it takes years, sometimes it's immediate, but you get the recognition you deserve. These books are sounding a bit to me, The Lost Theory and The Devil's Calling, like they almost uh, could, would parlay easily into film. Is that something you've thought about or anyone has suggested to you? Yes, my, I think the biggest obstacle to someone taking it on is the first book moves um, from uh, New York City to Kathmandu and an earthquake in Kathmandu. And so some of the locations and some of it, it would have to be a relative. I think it'd be hard to do as a low budget, I think, um, though. Who knows? An indie film sometimes can pull off a, a wide breadth of things. I do sometimes think of a scene like Tarantino. Uh, I don't mean people to think they're very violent, and, but the way Tarantino sets up the scene um, is I do sometimes visualize the scene in my mind as I'm writing it, almost like uh-huh. a Tarantino film. So there is uh, that kind of element of, you know, I think no writer today can really write without thinking of film and, and the way film s- sets up characters and scenes within the, the characters within the scenes. 
Right, right. Um, although, and I was thinking of the Matrix, actually, when I was uh, reading through the information, I was thinking of like that was a, a film that was, I mean, at the time, um, it seems probably, you know, less sophisticated now, but at the time it was like really groundbreaking with the idea of, you know, sci-fi and, and, uh, you know, morality and humanity and things like that. So I, I just think it, it, it sounds like both of these books and then the third as well could be something in, in a series. Do you ever think of who would play your characters? Well, I, there's some jokes going on because he's a, he's writing novels along the way too. So he's writing about what he's going through and how that in, impacts uh, the action as well. Um, so there's some jokes about, and he has a very, um, to your movie reference, he, he thinks a lot of things in terms of movie references. So he, um, queries at one point or a character queries whether Tom Hanks would have to play him in the movie. And he says something like, I thought it'd be more Ethan Hawke. Um, uh-huh. so yeah, there's a lot of that. And all, and he has a knack for describing the other characters in terms of famous actresses or actors as well. Uh huh. Well, I don't know. I just I I get this feeling because this is the type of uh I think material that that would parlay really well into a fantastic movie. Well, I am happy for you. I'm happy for us. We get to read something. This would be a great idea uh for gifts at, uh, around Christmas or or whenever birthdays. I thank you so much for joining me, Michael Kelly. Where can we find your wonderful trilogy, the first two installments, The Lost Theory and The Devil's Calling, just about everywhere? Yes, exactly. Um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and hopefully your local bookstore. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, they, they can order it and it'll be there quickly as well. So, uh, yes, you can go online to Amazon or you can go to the local bookstore. Um, I'd love to go to a local bookstore to get this. I think that would be, uh, the, the way to go for sure. Keep them, keep them as long as we can, uh, the, yes. the beautiful downtown bookstore. Well, thank you so much, Michael Kelly, and, um, good luck to you and keep writing and all of the success in the world to you and your, and your wonderful books. Thank you very much. I hope you have me on for the third and last of the, of the series. Oh, you better believe I will. Thank Absolutely. You. Hit me up next year for sure. Yeah. As soon as it's done, you're listening to the way home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, it's been an interesting hour. Authors and, you know, totally different modalities of, uh, you know, if we go from Bernie Madoff to sci-fi fiction. But uh, it's all interesting to me. Anyone that has the ability to to write down these things and make make uh, truly these stories come to life in the way that Jim and Mike have. I really it's it's an incredible gift and talent. And you know what? We have a guy who every week has an incredible gift and talent for finding the good in the world. Good news stories with Jim Cleefield every week here on the way home. And I'm so grateful to him for that. Hi, Jim. How are you doing, LJ and Bob? Well, we talk about depression and anxiety a lot. You hear a lot about that. But And if you're one of those that suffer it from with it, you're not alone. But did you know that the best medicine for that might be acts of kindness? No, I didn't know that. The study published in the Study of Professional Psychology 
basically said they, uh, they did a little study with three groups, okay? And they had to perform a task for 10 weeks. One looked at cognitive behaviors, another had social planning, and the other three did acts of kindness. Now, the good news is that study, the results said all three showed marked improvement in reducing depression and anxiety. But guess which group did the best? Yep, the ones who did the random acts of kindness, like baking cookies or delivering something to a friend or maybe giving them a ride. You know why? Because the other two groups were having a missing ingredient that the third group had, and that's called social connectivity. And I'm talking talking about social media. I'm talking about in-person social connectivity. Why? Because when you're around friends, it uplifts you. You feel better. You see the positive energy. And they did this study, and they had to do these tasks for 10 weeks. And they said, you know, if you do a random act of kindness, it just helps your well-being that much more. That's what came out in this particular study. I agree with that. I agree, too. I read something once a long time ago also that they said when one is feeling down and feeling like they need prayer themselves, how, how do you help to get someone out of that depression? You have them pray for somebody else. And there's something about the literal act of just what you said of doing something that focuses on another person and their needs that kind of lifts the the shade of gloom, sort of the darkness that can sometimes engulf us. And um, so that's interesting because I had read that many, many years ago. And I've used it before when I felt particularly down about something. I'll say, you know what, I'm going to use this as a time to maybe think about someone else, pray for someone else. that might be going through something, and, and it does. It seems to help. It's really s- remarkable. Beautiful story. Thank you for that, Jimmy. I know you have another one there. Well, the city of Buffalo, we know, has gone through a whole lot, uh, hasn't it? I mean, the tragedy, the shooting at the grocery store. We talked about DeMar Hamlin and what happened with him and how everybody pulled together. But then there's also the blizzard, and that's where the Buffalo Bills come into this story. It's really wonderful. This happened on Christmas Eve. There was a gentleman by the name of Joe Withy. He's a mechanic in Chautauqua. One Christmas Eve, while it was snowing at the height of the blizzard, he helped save about two dozen people that were stranded outside. He broke into a nearby school to make sure that they got warmth and shelter. He saved their lives. And that act of heroism did not go unnoticed, so much so that he was presented with the ultimate gift. You know what it is? Two tickets to Super Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona coming up. Oh, nice. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that nice to know? Yes. And the man who did it personally was one of the Buffalo Bills' all-time great stars, Thurman Thomas, a Hall of Fame running back. He was on those Bills teams that went to four straight Super Bowls in the 90s. He did a video for him and said, Jay, we love you. What you did on Christmas Eve was so heroic. You're our hero. And he did this by video, and he personally hand-delivered those tickets to him for saving their lives. Now, you can imagine what the cherry on top would be if the Bills, his hometown team, make the game. That's the only thing that could possibly top it. But I think the bottom line is, every time we see about a human tragedy or a natural disaster or whatever it may be, there's one common thread. And you know what that is? There's kindness, there's heroism, people pulling together to help each other. It's happened time and time again, and this is another wonderful example. I'm so happy to hear he's been... awarded rewarded in that way love that absolutely love it well thank you so much thank you lj and thank you bob you bet once again for making it all happen thank you jimmy and um for everybody listening thank you um, thank you to jim campbell with his exciting book madoff talks and the netflix series madoff monster of wall street and also to mike kelly have a wonderful week everybody thank you for listening to the program and be safe Be happy, be healthy, and, well, nothing but love to you. I'm Laura Smith. See you next time on The Way Home.